0: All right. We'll be looking at Psalm eighty-six, Psalm eighty-six this morning. As you have already uh, already turned there, you may have noticed as as um, we heard the reading of the Word of God uh, that this is a, a Psalm that comes from the heart of David, a heart full of of sadness, full of poverty, and and yearning. And for us over the last 4 years since the last uh time that we reported here, uh we have definitely experienced some of the need for uh psalms like like this. Uh, at the beginning of 2020, uh we had some dear friends, uh the Moors, who may have at one time or another visited here. Uh Jonathan and Janet Moore who were our partners in ministry, actually flew over on the same plane that we did, were in language school with us back in, in uh, 2013, uh, had three kids about the ages of, of our kids, some of our best friends in the world, uh, judged as they looked at the, the progress of the ministry uh, there in Kenya, judged that the work is done. And this is every, every missionary's tension is, is that he looks at the work and knows that part of his job is to replace himself and his uh, time in any given context is always limited. Uh, So as they considered uh, their role in God's uh, great mission and the mission of, of Christ for the church, uh, they judged that it was time not to be uh, missionary goers, but missionary senders. So they returned to the United States. He's a deacon in his church in, in Michigan. Uh, everything was, was good, except for the fact that we were, in a sense, losing some of our, our closest friends uh, in ministry. And that was January 2020. So we had a year in store for us. Uh, During the course of that year, we uh, lost uh, several of the members of our congregation, lost uh, family members. Uh, We had a a gentleman that we were planning to send that year as a church planter uh, in his early 30s, a father of uh, four little ones, uh, lose his wife, again, even before COVID started. Uh, we had, of course, during that time, a period uh, away from our our local gatherings uh, during the during the COVID period. It was it was a difficult year. As a church, we looked to the scriptures for our comfort. Where else can you Where else can you look? We looked to First Peter, a church that was, uh, uh, several churches that were undergoing suffering and and persecution. And Peter is writing to them to set their hope in Christ. We looked at the, the stinging providences of God in the book of Ruth and saw the way that uh, the Lord turned difficult providences uh, from thorns to roses. Now we looked at the book of Job and the book of Habakkuk where suffering saints are perplexed and crying out to God. But nowhere in the Scriptures teaches us more about how to suffer well, how to suffer as believers, than the book of Psalms. And this psalm in particular, I believe, gives us instructions for prayer. This is something that we as disciples of Jesus Followers of Jesus long to know. Even as Jesus' disciples, when Jesus was on earth, they asked him, teach us to pray. And this psalm does just that. And there will actually be uh, several parallels that I'll try to point out between the Lord's model prayer there uh, in the book of Matthew and, and this psalm not sure if you were able to spot it as, as we were reading this psalm, but something that's very common throughout the psalms and even in the, in the prophets, is that the uh, psalmist and the prophets do not feel bound uh, by our sense of structure. If you're in a speech uh, class in, uh, here in the States, uh, if you're, you're taking, for instance, uh, public speaking in university... Uh, they'll teach you to save your best point for last. Whatever your strongest and most compelling point, your, your best rhetoric is saved for, for last. The, David is not bound uh, by that rhetorical principle. In fact, the Hebrew way of thinking uh, generally puts the meat at the center, almost like a, a sandwich. What we have here is... Uh, two mirror sections, verses 1 through 7 and verses 14 through 17, provide a, a foundation and sandwich the meat of, of this passage, which is verses 8 through 13. With that in mind, let me give you a roadmap for the rest of our time this evening. Verses 1 through 7 and verses 14 through 17, interweave two critical principles when it comes to prayer. The first is that our cry to our Creator arises from our anguish, our agony. Our cry to our Creator arises from our anguish. And interwoven with that in the first and last section of this psalm, we find the psalmist David listing for himself in prayer the attributes of God. Our cry to our Creator relies on God's attributes. Our cry to our Creator arises from our anguish and relies on God's attributes. In the center of this psalm, the meat of this psalm, we find our third point, which is that our cry to our Creator submits to God's agenda. Our cry to our Creator submits to God's agenda. So... You could say agony or, and attributes and aim or anguish, attributes and agenda would be a roadmap for our time together the, uh, for the rest of, of this morning. Let's dive in. This is, as we see in the subtitle of this uh, psalm, a prayer of David. Uh, that, that superscription is actually included In the Hebrew text, uh, in my translation here, I have it in in small caps, uh, a prayer of David. That's distinguished from uh, the section headings that we find in our Bible, which are added by the translators. For instance, my edition, uh, I'm looking at an English Standard Version here. My edition says, great is your steadfast love. That's added by the translator, but under that is a prayer of David, which is included in the Hebrew text itself, and is often a reliable guide for how we can think about where this psalm came from. So this psalm was written by David. You can picture in your mind some some stories that come from David, of course, the most famous being David and Goliath. Well, of course, after David and Goliath, after that story, Saul gets jealous of David, right? So at first, he's just this lad, and nobody thinks anything of him. But once he has defeated Goliath, Saul begins to think of him as a threat. Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands, right? And eventually, this drives David into the wilderness, into exile, away from the center of activity of God's people. And yet, even there, he attracts attention, right? He's got like 400 rascals, discontented people who gather around him. And the point is this, is if we picture David, we're picturing a man's man. He's a warrior king. He's one who's used to rugged living. He's one who is not afraid to face battle. And yet, he finds that it is no compromise to his masculinity to pour out his poverty and need before his God, as it says at the end of verse 1. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. The prayers of the godly are the pouring out of our hearts before our God. Therefore, we should not think that our prayers before Him must be set in order. In fact, when we come before our God, it's often with a heart full of turmoil and chaos, anguish and agony, darkness, depression, despair. And that's exactly how God wants it to be. Don't consider yourself excluded from the throne of grace, simply because you need strength and help. That's exactly why the throne of grace has been provided for us. We must be quick to acknowledge our poverty and need. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he was not shy about teaching them to make requests to be desperately dependent. Give us today our daily bread. That's a, that's a state of desperation, one probably that we're not even familiar with, where we're, we're wondering where today's meals will come from. Give us, forgive us our sins, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one. You see how Jesus taught us to pray from a sense of poverty of spirit, poor and needy. This is set against David's enemies, outlined in verse 14. Look at verse 14, the mirror side of this this passage. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. And they do not set you before them. So we see on one side David's humble cry and he's looking over toward his enemies and the thing that first characterizes them in his mind is that they are insolent, arrogant, proud. Arrogant men have risen up against me in uh, nairobi we have uh, something that has caught international attention called matatu culture and you could even google matatu culture and you'll see all sorts of fun uh silly kinds of things Uh, one one of the things that we often see is is american celebrities painted in actually pretty good detail on the side of, of of matatus often they're very colorful and uh, what you might think of as graffiti kind of style uh, but very artistic and you find strange mottos like living on a prayer uh, written on on the side of matatus. One uh, afternoon I was stuck in traffic looking around and one of these matatus caught my eye and what it said was I would rather die on my feet than live on my knees. I was curious about that and thought, well, I wonder where where that saying came from. In a a culture that claims 86% of the population claims the name of Christ and 49% claim to be evangelical, that's kind of a striking statement. I would rather die on my feet than live on my knees. So I looked up the origin of that of that saying. There is a similar Greek saying from way back with like Spartans and those kinds of things, uh, but the the wording is actually a translation from a Mexican revolutionary, Emiliano Zapata, who was at times uh, cooperating with Pancho Villa. You may know that name, Pancho Villa. Sometimes uh, sometimes the enemy of of Pancho Villa. And, of course, he was making the statement in a political sense. And I, probably, I think that probably uh, the statement on the side of the, of the matatu was intended in a political sense. But these men have refused to set the Lord before them. They have said to Yahweh, the true and living God, I would rather die on my feet than live on my knees. You see how David has contrasted himself from his enemies. Insolent men have risen up against me. You see, our cry to our Creator comes out of a sense of humility. A sense that while arrogance and hubris will lead to humiliation humility will lead to help. So David just sets it all out. He pours out his heart before his God. Now we won't have time to go into detail to e- into every verse uh, of this psalm this morning, but I do want to look briefly at verse 2 because to our ears it almost sounds like he's taking back with his left hand what he just gave with his right. He says, Preserve my life, for I am godly, Savior's servant, who trusts in you. You are my God. Now, he has claimed he is poor and needy. And then he has said, Preserve my life, for I am godly. Almost sounds like he said, he's saying, Lord, I deserve for you to help me. I merit your help. I have earned your help. When we read that word godly. Uh, This word godly is is difficult to bring into English. If you have another translation in your lap this morning, you may have something like holy or faithful, and it's translated in the English Standard Version along those lines in in different contexts. I think this verse itself is the best guide for how to understand what this word means in this context. What... David is saying, is not I have merited or I have earned your preservation of my life. But what he is saying is he is the Lord, Yahweh's servant. He trusts in Yahweh. He's looking to his God alone. What he is saying is that he is not looking to Baal, or asherah he is not looking to the armor of saul or the sword of goliath he is not looking to silver or gold he is not looking to chariots or horses he's trusting in god alone of course we know those who only have god to look to have everything that they need and yet this is what david is saying I don't have any other hope. Lord, I am your man. There's nowhere else for me to run, like Peter said. Where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. This note of desperation has not been lost when he has said, preserve my life, for I am godly. He said, I'm claimed by you. Lord, I am your servant. You are my God. You've You are all I've got. So his cry to his creator arises out of his anguish, out of his desperation, his poverty, and his need. So in the darkness and despair that comes our way, whether it's losing a loved one or merely saying goodbye for a short time, whether it's losing some material possession or losing your health or seeing a friend move away, we cry to our Creator in a sense of anguish. We set it all before Him, pouring it out before Him. That's a sad place to... Begin, and and so we're glad to know that the Lord doesn't leave us there. David brings us to the foundation, to the place of refuge. Verse 5 and verse 15. Verse 5 says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in, lo- in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Verse 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. David knows his Bible. And these statements about the Lord's attributes are from David's Bible, the Torah, the law of the Lord on which he meditates day and night. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7 is the cross reference. You might even have it there uh, in your Bible. The Lord graciously, after the people had strayed from him, after they had erected uh, the golden calf and bowed down to them, the Lord graciously, rather than abandoning them, accommodates himself to them reveals himself to them in these terms of being good, slow to anger, ready to forgive, abundant in loving kindness, merciful, gracious, abundant in faithfulness and truth. This statement from Exodus 34 comes up again and again in the Old Testament Scriptures. Moses himself talks about it in Numbers and in Deuteronomy. 2 Samuel refers to it. 2 Kings refers to it. 2 Chronicles, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Lamentations, Daniel, Nehemiah, 2 Chronicles. This last week I was looking to see if there are some New Testament references. It seems like Romans chapter 2 is leaning on this Exodus 34. David knew that in the midst of his darkness and difficulty, he was not alone. In fact, he had a place to run and a place to rest his anguish and his agony on the covenant-keeping character of God. God is good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love. Now this is also the place where we see a tension. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 also says that the Lord who is compassionate will not let the guilty go unpunished. That's part of who the Lord is. He is one God. A God who is compassionate and good and loving and that loving holiness of the true and living God is a just God. A just holiness, love, goodness. And it's a tension, I believe, that was not fully resolved until God gave us not just his name, but also his Son. And Jesus came to earth, the full revelation of the Lord, the Lord, good and forgiving. And he, in becoming our substitute, resolves for us the tension that we feel when we read a passage like, the the Lord forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, yet will not let the guilty go unpunished. For everyone who trusts in Jesus, they find in him a refuge. He satisfied the demands of God's justice in our place so that we, like David, can lean on the covenant-keeping character of God in the midst of difficulty and grief and find in the midst of our darkness a Lord who is good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love. If we stopped here, we'd have a sound theology of prayer We pour out our hearts before the Lord and rely on his covenant-keeping character. But let's take a brief look at the apex of this psalm. When the Lord Jesus taught us to pray, the first thing that he taught us to request was not our daily bread, was not even the forgiveness of our sins, what did he teach us to request first? Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. The Lord Jesus, when he taught his followers to pray, taught us to submit to God's agenda, and that's exactly where David leads us as well. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. David, of course, didn't just have the book of Exodus, also had the book of Genesis. He knew that God had promised Abraham that Abraham's seed would be like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, innumerable. He knew that David or he knew that Abraham was waiting for a city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He knew that Abraham was waiting for all the families of the earth to be blessed through his seed. And so in the midst of his despair, he's sitting in the wilderness on a rock instead of a throne that he deserves. He looks to the horizon and says, God's on an agenda. God is on mission. God has not lost track of what he is doing in this world. And we're taught to pray the exact same way. Sometimes it feels like death It's like we've got a cardboard box that has been grafted into the skin on our shoulders. And all we can see is the inside of this cardboard box of our grief and misery and difficulty and darkness. And and to tear off that box is so painful. But brothers and sisters, we need to see beyond the box to the horizon. We need to see that aim to which God will not stray, from which God will not stray. He has committed his omniscient, omnipotent mind to a purpose. He will see, we know from the book of Revelation, who that seed of Abraham is. He will ensure that Jesus, The Lamb is surrounded by a kingdom of priests who are worshiping. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. A kingdom of priests from every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you as we are shedding tears in grief in loss in difficulty as difficult as it is as much as it tears it seems like it's tearing the very head off our shoulders to look to the horizon this is what god teaches us to do this is for our good say, God's on an agenda. He will accomplish his purpose. And there is coming a day when the leaves of the tree of life will be for the healing of the nations. There is a coming a day when he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Well, if God's agenda is not merely broad. It is also deep. Look at verses 11 through 13 as we close. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. You hear David crying out in the midst of the confusion and the chaos of his mind, in the midst of despair, and he barely is able to put one thought in front of another. Have you ever suffered grief like that? In the midst of that, he calls out to his God and says, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. All of the different things that I want to change about the situation I'm in, Lord, unite all of those desires into one desire. Unite my heart to fear your name your name. What I want is to see your majesty, to know from the heart how big, how good you are. I want to know you and make you known. You see, God is committed to agenda to an agenda to see not only that all over the world he will have gracious and uncontested rule. He's committed to that agenda. But his agenda is neither narrow nor shallow. He's also committed to seeing you worship with undistracted, grateful joy. So David is praying. He's so desperate, he's, he's willing in verse 17, just show me a sign of your favor. He's content with just a a sign, a signal in the midst of his desperation, but he's not leaving himself in the place of despair. He looks and says, God, do what you came to do. Do in me what you are seeking to accomplish through this difficulty. Unite my heart to fear your name. That's hard to say, isn't it? when you're saying goodbye, maybe for the last time, when you know your body is giving up on you, when you just can't seem to beat the darkness, it's hard to say, unite my heart to fear your name. But there's something that frees us to do that. The Lord Jesus himself descended to a dark garden, And he said, in the midst of desperation so deep that he sweat drops of blood, he said, not my will, but yours be done. Because Jesus said that in the garden, he has freed us from the domination of unbelief and sin. Because he said that in the garden, we can trust him, we have been Freed from the destructive distrust that says, Oh, if God is on an agenda, then I don't have want to have anything to do with it. We've been freed from that because Jesus said, Not my will, but yours be done. Because he went on to that cruel cross and suffered in our place. Because he said, Not my will, but yours be done, we can look at that cross and say, you know what? I don't understand what God is up to, but I can trust that He loves me. I can trust that whatever He's doing, it's for my good. I can trust that a God who would devise such an incredible plan to save me, that God is wise enough to know what's best for me. We have been free, freed to yield to surrender in the midst of our darkness to God's great agenda.